The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and before we get today's program underway, I want to take a moment to thank the Sokolovs and the Lyford Key Club for their hospitality while I was speaking in the Bahamas, and also for the sponsors of the Great Lakes Business Intelligence Conference for their warm reception in Detroit. In just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to hear from the longtime public trustee of Medicare and Social Security and former deputy director of the National Economic Council under President Bush, Mr. Chuck Blahouse. He's come under fire for issuing a report which spells out how the Affordable Care Act will increase the federal deficit, a report which flies in the face of what you will remember was the original impetus behind the reason for the Affordable Care Act that this reform was needed to get inflating health care costs under control. We're going to find out today whether financial arguments which gave birth to the Affordable Care Act were flawed from the very beginning. But before Mr. Blahouse joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Charles Paul Blahouse was born in Alexandria, Virginia, and grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He earned his undergraduate degree in chemistry from Princeton University and Ph.D. in computational quantum chemistry from the University of California at Berkeley in 1989. That same year, he began working as an aide to Senator Alan Simpson, and he soon rose to the position of Congressional Science Fellow and Legislative Director under Simpson. When Simpson retired, Blahat became Policy Director for Senator Judd Gregg of New Hampshire. By 2001, he found himself working as Special Assistant to the President of the United States, during which time he advised on domestic economic policy and served as the president's executive director for the Bipartisan Commission to Strengthen Social Security. In 2007, Blahouse became the deputy director of the National Economic Council, and we'll hear more about his work on the council later. Today, Blahouse is a fellow at the acclaimed Hoover Institution, where his work on U.S. economic policy continues. It's my pleasure to welcome one of our nation's foremost experts on Medicare and Social Security, Mr. Chuck Blahouse. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, it's no secret that we have short memories, but as you point out in your analysis of the Affordable Care Act, the original reason for the act was to get control over the dangerous effect inflationary health care costs were going to have on the federal budget. Is that right? Well, that's certainly one of the rationales that it was put forward. I, I think uh, there were multiple motivations that were articulated, uh, often to different constituencies, uh, for passing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, certainly, uh, many people regarded uh, the expansion of, of health care coverage to uh, more individuals uh, 
as being a, a primary goal in and of itself, uh, and others regarded uh, cost containment and, and an improvement of the federal fiscal situation as an important objective as well. Uh, now, those two, uh, those two objectives, I think, were generally regarded as being somewhat in tension, somewhat in conflict. Uh, but certainly it was, it was represented by the supporters of the ACA that it would be able to achieve both, that it would both improve the federal fiscal outlook and increase uh, insurance coverage and access. And uh, I, I think um, over time we have found that, um, that the, uh, the, the claim that the, the law would improve the federal fiscal outlook uh, was a much weaker one than that it would uh, expand health insurance coverage. In fact, I believe your analysis shows that the plan would add $340 billion, with a B, to the federal deficit in the next 10 years, and by 2017, we're in pretty deep. Yes, and it's, it's interesting. When I wrote that paper, um, I didn't realize in my <laughs> naivete that I was saying something that would be regarded as terribly controversial, and I was quickly, uh, quickly informed otherwise by some of the reaction. Uh, but basically, I worked from the Congressional Budget Office uh, analysis and estimates, uh, and what I was trying to demonstrate was uh, just explain how those analyses are done. And basically, the, the Congressional Budget Office is given a set of scorekeeping rules, and they are instructed to analyze the effects of legislation uh, under those scorekeeping rules. Uh, and those scorekeeping rules differ from <clears throat> measuring uh, the change in law in a literal way. Uh, in, in, a, in a number of respects, and we can get into those if, if you're interested. But basically, I said if you if you put aside the scorekeeping rules that govern how the CBO uh, is instructed to evaluate legislation, and just compare uh, what CBO would say would say would be the situation arising under the law relative to in the absence of the law, uh, the CBO analysis showed clearly that the law would actually increase the deficit. But but a lot of the press had had misunderstood this. Uh, because they were basically uh, comparing the effects of the law uh, to uh, a, a baseline the CBO is instructed to use uh, that itself uh, involves some changes in the law. But as I understand it, and, and please understand that even myself and most of the listeners today, we don't really know how the Congressional uh, Budget Office does these it monitors the scorekeeping and how the scorekeeping actually works when it comes to programs like this. So I'm sure that it's it's become really difficult to explain this in layman's terms. But in layman's terms, what was the major error in the calcul in the cost saving calculations? Can, is there a way to explain it to us so that we can understand it simply? Well, I wouldn't describe it as an error. I, w I would describe it basically as a convention, and I think. If you basically add up all of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act that spend money, uh, they add up to a certain amount. And then if you add up all the various provisions of the Affordable Care Act that bring in additional revenue, uh, they add up to a certain amount. And the, and the amount of new spending in the law is greater than the amount of new revenue under the law. Ergo, it should add to the deficit. Now, the reason it does not appear that way in uh, the scorekeeping conventions is that CBO is basically instructed to assume that there will be certain spending increases legislated anyway. Uh, they're basically instructed to assume that some of those spending increases that are reflected in the ACA would have happened regardless, uh, even though they involved a change in the law. And so when you make that assumption, then basically that leads you to uh, the conclusion that the net new spending under the Affordable Care Act is a little bit less. And it's under that 
comparison that the ACA under the CBO analysis appears to reduce the deficit. It's basically because they were instructed uh, to assume that some of the cost increases would have happened anyway, even if the ACA hadn't been passed. So how can they do that? How can we come up with imaginary cost increases that are not based in reality in order to make the numbers turn out? Because well, I think what you're saying is is that we, we, we base the analysis on imaginary cost increases that were going to occur anyways. Right. And what this well, right. What this what this basically involves is the unique financing of the Social Security and the Medicare programs. Uh, under law, both Social Security and Medicare are not permitted to spend money in excess of the amounts in their respective trust funds. And because of that, historically, for example, in 1983, when Social Security was on the brink of exhausting its trust fund, uh, you had to have a a series of tax increases and retirement age changes and and new benefit taxes imposed and uh, benefit restraints and COLA restraints. All these things had to be done to keep that trust fund from running out. And similarly, various actions have been taken with Medicare over the years to keep its trust fund from running out. And basically what CBO was instructed to assume, and these have been instructions really in uh, the scorekeeping conventions uh, for several years now. This was not unique to the ACA. Uh, But they were basically instructed to assume that Congress will basically stop doing that, that the next time Social Security and Medicare uh, start running shy of resources, but instead of making uh, the changes necessary to uh, return the program to solvency, basically uh, Congress would change the policy and give the programs permission to spend money uh, basically in excess of their trust funds. We have to take a scheduled break, but when we come back, I'd really like to dive into that a little bit more because uh, we have long been supplementing Social Security and Medicare uh, beyond what the law actually intended, and that's something I'd like to bring up in the next segment. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with more from Chuck Blahouse. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. 
That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. We are 125 years old. Hello, Bill Teisling here, and yes, your Santa Cruz Area Chamber of Commerce is 125 years old, and we're inviting you to help us celebrate Wednesday, March 19th at the Santa Cruz Business Fair at the Coconut Grove Ballroom on Beach Street in Santa Cruz. This year, we are celebrating the past, present, and future of local businesses with over 100 booths and tables, exhibiting the best of the Santa Cruz County business community. Get in on the fun, and hear some good news about all the new businesses being started in Santa Cruz County. Enjoy the food and drink, and lots of it, as Santa Cruz Area Restaurants, Breweries, and and wineries offer up some of their best to tantalize your taste buds. Above all, get in on all the people you would like to meet at the place and time you'd like to meet them. Wednesday, the 19th, between 4 and 7 p.m. at the Coconut Grove Ballroom on Beach Street for the 25th Annual Santa Cruz Business Fair, sponsored by Santa Cruz Economic Development, Data Flow Business Systems, Wells Fargo Bank, Physicians Medical Group, Dominican Dignity Health Group, Lucid Sound and Pictures, and KSCO, K-O-M-Y. Spring is in the air, and that means it's time for... What? Allergies? Easter bunnies? No, Charlie. It's time for electrical safety. Of course. Hello. Charlie Friedman here with Chris Jensen from JM Electric. Spring is the season for safety. That's right, Charlie. Every year, thousands are injured or killed by electricity around the home. But thankfully, we now have incredible technologies today, like arc fault circuit interrupters and tamper-resistant receptacles that can protect you from those electrical fires and shocks. JM Electric is happy to help folks out with a free home assessment to see if any of these devices or our current safe testing services are a good fit for their home. Don't get a free tap dancing lesson from your electrical circuitry. Give my friends at JM Electric a call. They'll come to your home, have an expert look at your electrical systems, and tell you what can be done to make your home safe. Safe, just like they did for my home, and their visit won't cost you a dime. Give JM Electric a call at 422-7819 or visit jmelectric.com or on Facebook and tell them Charlie sent you. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Chuck Blahouse. So let's talk for a moment about these laws which govern entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security. The, the laws are very specific. Medicare and Social Security are only allowed to make payments when they have the funds to do so. So if the funds become depleted, then the payments should automatically stop. So as I understand it, these programs were never meant to be guaranteed or perpetual. Do I have that right? Well, they were certainly not meant to have an unlimited cap on the Treasury. Uh, now, I will say there's some complexities here on the Medicare side. There's a, there's a part of Medicare that runs much like Social Security. It's financed by a payroll tax, and it is uh, designed so that its expenditures are supposed to fit 
within the amount of spending that can be financed by that payroll tax. But there is another part of Medicare uh, that is effectively given an open tap on the Treasury, and that's uh, the Medicare Part B and Part D sides of Medicare. And those are constructed basically to be given whatever revenues they need. Uh, They can never go insolvent by statutory construction, and they're a little bit different than uh, Part A of Medicare and, and different from Social Security. So for a moment, let's take a look at, uh, you know, the fact that we might be spending more than we're taking in in payroll taxes to cover the uh, the areas of Medicare that are not guaranteed and Social Security costs. Then according to the law, y- you only have so many choices. You're either going to reduce benefits, change the age uh, that you qualify, or increase taxes to cover the shortfalls, or else you have to stop uh, payments when the funds are depleted. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Uh, But we're not exactly operating these programs the way they were originally designed or meant to be run. Uh, In fact, uh, you uh, point out that we're using some clever gimmicks like Treasury debt obligations to subsidize Social Security. Uh, But it's safe to say that uh, most taxpayers are not aware that entitlement programs, which are supposed to be funded by payroll taxes, are now being subsidized by income taxes. Well, thank you for raising that, because I think that's an extremely important point. I think there is a widespread perception that uh, Social Security benefit payments have, in a certain sense, been earned, that people are basically receiving uh, benefits that uh, beneficiaries have, at least as a group, uh, adequately financed with their own payroll tax contributions. And there is an extent to which that has historically been true. Uh, the the trust fund of Social Security does earn interest, and the interest payments are made from the general fund uh, to the trust fund. But for the most part, historically, uh, you could at least say that, that all of the revenues in the trust fund, or, or the vast majority of them, had some relationship to the payroll taxes that beneficiaries had paid. But we basically abandoned that in the last couple of years without a tremendous amount of public fanfare. Uh, when the uh, White House and the Congress wanted to cut the payroll tax, uh, they didn't want to diminish the amount of money going into the Social Security Trust Fund. So they started funding the system from income tax revenues. And there wasn't a whole lot of publicity about it, uh, but it was done. And it was basically uh, an abandonment for at least two years of the principle of Social Security paying its own way. Now, we've reverted, we, we ended the payroll tax cut, and uh, we're no longer adding additional debt uh, from income tax uh, payments uh, to the trust fund. Uh, But uh, for two years there, we we put over $200 billion into these trust funds that is now earning interest uh, that does not represent any taxes that anyone ever paid. It was just a, a pure addition of debt. But as I recall, FDR intended for Social Security to be an independent trust fund, or did I, do I misunderstand that? No, you have that exactly right. In fact, not only did he want it to be independent, he actually wanted it to be uh, pre-funded. He wanted uh, people to be paying in advance, in effect, for their own benefits. And now he, he basically lost on that. Uh, that's one of the few elements of Social Security that he did not prevail on. Uh, they went instead with a, with a pay-as-you-go system, where basically each generation's benefits were paid by the tax contributions of the following generation. Uh, but they and did what a difference it would have made if FDR had won on that one point. Well, you're right. It would have made a tremendous difference because 
a pay-as-you-go system where your benefits are paid for by the generation that puts you. Uh, that is very sensitive to changes in the ratio of taxpaying workers to recipient beneficiaries. And, of course, that's exactly what we're experiencing now, uh, especially with the baby boomers heading into retirement. Uh, the ratio of workers to collectors is dropping very rapidly, and a, and a pay-as-you-go system is destabilized by that. Right. Now, you mentioned that we had this payroll tax cut. Uh, that happened to come right in the middle of a great recession when contributions from payroll taxes were down. What were we thinking to make a payroll tax cut when the contributions to Social Security and Medicare were already diminished? Well, I think what they were thinking, and I, I, did, I opposed this policy when it was enacted, but it, uh, what they were thinking was that the economy needed a boost and it needed some additional uh, stimulus uh, in, in the form of running a larger federal deficit and allowing people to pay less in taxes. That was the thinking. I think they were thinking in terms of a hoped-for effect on the larger economy. Uh, in my judgment, they were not thinking sufficiently about the effect on Social Security because now that we have set this precedent that it is acceptable to subsidize Social Security with income taxes, uh, it's very hard to draw a line as to where that stops. So, effectively, we've robbed Peter to pay Paul. Well, I think we've done something even more serious in the sense that we have eliminated a very important element of discipline in the Social Security program. Uh, the Social Security program isn't perfect, and it, it has had... Uh, you know, imperfections and flaws over the years, but I think one of the great virtues of the program is that historically we did have this principle that we weren't going to pay out more in benefits than the program generated in tax revenues. Uh, and that's, that's very important because the, the benefits that each person receives are at least in some way, uh, the benefit formula is really based on your lifetime wages that have been subject to the Social Security tax. So it, it creates this this concrete tie for everyone, rich or poor, uh, between what they put into the program and what they get out. But when you start... But if at any point you can supplement the, the Social Security trust fund uh, by uh, siphoning off income taxes to cover any shortfalls, uh, then it's not, a, it's not a closed system anymore. It doesn't pay for itself. That is exactly the concern. And it's a concern that I have, and I think it's an underappreciated concern because... Not everyone pays income taxes. Uh, so you have basically benefits that are uh, supported by income tax contributions and not really credited towards anyone's benefits. So some people are getting benefits that other people finance with their income taxes, and other people are paying income taxes uh, to, without getting any benefit credits for themselves. Now, one can argue that we should have that type of system. That, that type of system is what people generally think of as more of a welfare-type system. You know, people don't we don't keep track of who paid what into the welfare systems or the, the means-tested systems. Uh, we have people support them with their income taxes, and they go to people who need them. But Social Security is, is always run differently. We have this idea that everyone was supposed to earn benefits based on what they themselves put in. And we have started to abandon that, and I think we haven't had sufficient debate about whether we really want to change Social Security in this way. Yes, I agree with you, because what we've basically done now is written an open check from the income tax fund. Uh, we have to take another break. Uh, stay right where you are. When we come back, we're going to find out why temporary stopgap measures are maybe doing more harm than good. You're listening to the Costa Report.
of my new customs is to put open bottles of red and white wine on my table so my guests can serve themselves. But not just any wine. In my home, I want to serve the best, and that's wine from Caraccioli Cellars. So this year, I asked winemaker Scott Caraccioli for a suggestion on what I should serve. Come dinner time, it's always a good idea to have a bottle of nice Chardonnay as well as Pinot Noir on your table. That way you have a selection for every guest that walks through your door. But the best way to start the evening is definitely with a bottle of Bubbles, preferably Brut Rosé, to really get the celebration in, in the mode of the holidays. Oh, you're absolutely right. It's, there's something about the Bubbles that gets everybody going. Yeah, it's really a an infusion of happiness. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. So I'll start with the bubbles and then move on to the red and white on my table, and then I'll have everyone covered. Unless people want to keep going with the bubbles, which I always advise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. For the last 60 years, Coast Paper and Supply has been serving locals and businesses for all their cleaning and paper supply needs. With an 1,800-square-foot showroom and nearly 5,000 products, you'll find everything you're looking for in the way of janitorial supplies, retail and industrial packaging, and disposable food service products for business or home, not to mention their huge selection of boxes and shipping supplies. Their family-owned and operated business is located at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz. Call 831-423-3350 or visit Coast Paper Supply Inc.com, a proud member of Think Local First. Hi, registered pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. Keratin, the hard protein that gives hooves and horns and feathers and scales and claws their tough, solid quality, is a critical component of human skin as well. In fact, the surface of our skin is in effect coated with a super thin layer of a tough, rigid substance. Finger and toenails are largely composed of keratin, and it's the same stuff that gives hair its fiber-like, resilient quality. The skin is composed of multiple layers. Skin cells, which are technically called keratinocytes, are born in the bottom layer of the skin, and they gradually rise to the top, becoming more and more filled with keratin. By the time a skin cell has made it from the bottom layer to the top layer, it is essentially filled with this protein to the point where it is actually nothing more than a little speck of hard keratin. Sometimes skin cells will make too much keratin, and you can end up with little hard bumps called milia or keratoses. Excessive keratin can also clog pores and cause acne lesions to form. If you have those tiny little bumps on the skin or you're dealing with troublesome pimples, one of the most functional ways to deal with the problem is to stabilize keratin production by using topical vitamin A, especially retinoic acid. It may help to apply a little apple cider vinegar or 10% solution of glycolic acid directly on the skin on a daily basis. And correcting fat malabsorption problems with supplemental digestive enzymes, probiotics, lecithin, and bile salts can help clear skin up too. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Sundays at 4 on KSEO. Kick back and relax with the Dave Allen Show. Every Sunday, Dave serves up two hours worth of an eclectic mix of music and interesting guests with positive conversational topics. Dave calls it positive radio. You'll call it too cool for school. Either way, there's nothing like the Dave Allen Show. Sundays at 4.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Chuck Blahouse, former deputy director of the National Economic Council, special assistant to President Bush. And in the previous segment, you were making the point that the original intent of Social Security and portions of Medicare was for these programs to be self-funding. But now that we've set the precedence that we can supplement these funds from sources such as income taxes, uh, we've basically written an open check to keep these entitlement programs afloat. Um, I want to switch gears here just a bit and ask you about some of these short-term measures that we're so fond of in uh, Washington, D.C. You believe that uh, temporary tax and spend policies, such as the payroll tax we were talking about earlier, do more harm than good. Is that right? Well, I certainly believe that with respect to the payroll tax cut, because here you had a program uh, with very long-term implications. um, And uh, I don't think that this action was taken with due regard for its effect on the long-term operations of Social Security. So while there is, I think, in general, a concern about having too short-term a view of economic policy, uh, in this case it was particularly damaging because it did, uh, I think, unanticipated long-term damage to an important program. If businesses are put in a position where they have to guess whether a tax cut's going to expire or it's going to be extended and for how long it's going to be extended, it, it makes it really hard for them to make long-range investments, which, which of course, slows job creation down, doesn't it? No question. The, the high degree of policy uncertainty that we have had uh, in Washington for the last couple of years uh, has definitely had a detrimental impact, in my view, has, has probably slowed our recovery from the recession. Uh, it's, it's interesting because when the payroll tax, uh, I don't know if you remember, it was originally uh, enacted for one year, and then there was a lot of uncertainty as to whether it was going to be uh, extended for a second year. And I remember uh, a lot of the original advocates of the payroll tax cut had expressed a tremendous amount of frustration that it was so difficult to extend it for a second year uh, when, in their view, it was necessary to do so. Uh, and they complained about the high degree of policy uncertainty that was created by this open issue of whether this payroll tax cut would be extended. And of course, my answer to that would be, this is inherent in having short-term policies to begin with. You're, you're creating this sort of policy uncertainty uh, by the very act of doing a temporary payroll tax cut. If we don't want to have policy uncertainty, we shouldn't be resorting to these sorts of short-term actions. And and yet, we just seem to be a country that can't make decisions more than six months a year. I mean, look at even the current budget agreement. We we can only seem to get an agreement for a very short period of time, and then it seems to blow up. And yet, we're trying to get businesses to make longer-term investments in, in building factories and, and training people for the new, new generation of jobs. Um, there's such a... a, a, a a discord between the short-term mitigations and saying, on the other hand, that you want businesses to make longer-term investment in, in, uh, you know, in, in creating more jobs. No question about it. In fact, anyone who has looked at the latest Congressional Budget Office report of the government's fiscal outlook knows that we have an untenable fiscal situation on our hands. And so there have to be these unspecified policy corrections to that that have yet to occur, but no one knows how they're going to occur. 
Uh, and so it, it puts anyone who has to think about making investments, uh, it puts them in the position of not knowing in what unspecified way they may be tapped for more taxes or some other form of austerity to deal with the looming fiscal situation. The fact that we leave this unaddressed for so long uh, puts actors in our economy in a very, very difficult position. So, you know, you worked in Washington, D.C. Why do we do this? I mean, there's a lot of smart people there. They know they're creating uncertainty. Why do they continue? Well, I'd like to give you a two-part answer on that. <laughs> the first part is I think it's inherent in the nature of the beast. I, when I worked in the Senate, I worked there for 11 years. Uh, I used to joke that the Senate collectively was like a, uh, a freshman college student, you know, that the, they would take forever to start their work, and then they would stay up all night at the last minute to try to get their work done. And that was just, it was just the nature of the Senate. Uh, and I think that that dynamic uh, has always been with us. It's, it's just part of the messiness of, uh, of uh, representative democracy and uh, of uh, our national legislature. But I think beyond that, we're seeing procrastinating uh, for a number of very specific reasons. For example, on the Social Security side, uh, we should have fixed this problem long ago. In my judgment, we, we are now at a point where it's very much an open question whether we're going to be able to ever repair the Social Security shortfall uh, or if we're just going to have to abandon its historical financing structure and just go formally to a general revenue uh, funded program. And, and the reason I believe this is that the shortfall has been allowed to grow to the point where it's now over twice as large, even in relative terms, uh, as the shortfall that was corrected with so much political difficulty in 1983. And so we're in, we're in uncharted waters on Social Security already. There's no political precedent for closing a shortfall uh, in an entitlement of the magnitude of the one we now face in Social Security. Now, why, do we, why has that happened? Well, it has largely happened because people have played sort of a, a brinksmanship game. They've basically placed the bet that if they argue against action and downplay the problem long enough that ultimately the political system will go in the direction of their preferred solution. Uh, many people on, on the left side of the spectrum have argued, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem, uh, with the eye towards at the end of the game, if we get to 2033 and we still haven't fixed the problem, we're not going to be willing to cut benefits for people all of a sudden then, so we're just going to have to raise taxes and there won't have too many changes on the benefit side. So it's been, in some ways, kind of a, a planned gamble that if action is stalled, that it will go in the direction of higher taxes rather than cost controls. Uh, but I think they've pushed that gamble to the point where now it's an open question whether we get a fix at all, uh, and, and they're going to wind up uh, doing damage to a program they actually don't want to do damage to. See, I, I hate these kinds of problems that linger on and move from one generation to another. I think they're absolutely toxic and deadly and demoralizing to the next generation. Uh, what do you think about doing a one-time transfer to make up for that deficit? And then going back to FDR's argument that from that point forward, it has to be self-funding or benefits are cut. Well, there has been a proposal put out there. Uh, Alicia Minnell wrote a, an article the other day basically saying, let's do a big one-time transfer to the trust funds of about... Get it over 20, with. Why not get it over with? Why limp along and pretend like there's no elephant in the room? The problem is that that proposal doesn't get it over with. What it does is it just puts 
$24 trillion of debt in the trust funds. And then, of course, unless we raised taxes by $24 trillion at that moment, um, what we would do instead is we'd just be paying off that debt for generations to come. So it's, it's not actually something that gets the problem behind us. All it does is it instead of paying off that the shortfall in Social Security through the payroll tax system over all time, we would basically issue debt that had to be redeemed with income taxes, and then we'd pay that off over all time. Make a one-time transfer and then close that door. The bank vault gets shut. There's no more no more transfers from ge- the general fund or from income taxes. That's it. The, the fund is closed, and from there on in, it has to be self-funding. But the, the Wouldn't problem it be is worth that, it to just to just shut the bank down? But there's but that that particular proposal wouldn't really shut the bank down because the the method of debt of the debt issuance that you do to the trust fund those are in the form of treasury bonds and those treasury right. bonds have to be paid off from general revenues. So basically, all your all that would do it, it actually wouldn't shut the bank down. It would just say that instead of payroll taxpayers paying off the shortfall going forward, income taxpayers would pay it off by redeeming these treasury bonds. Right. I would only be in favor of that if you could never go back to the general fund for any more money for Social Security. What I'm saying is if you make that transfer, then that 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 closes that door. Well, you, you would have to transfer. Uh, we have got to take another uh, scheduled break, but we'll be right back with more from Chuck Blahouse. You're listening to the Costa Report. Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes, from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. Are you looking for a keynote speaker for your next company meeting, symposium, training event, or exposition? For over 50 years, the American Program Bureau has been bringing the world's most respected leaders and thinkers together with audiences in every industry, from healthcare, technology, education, and finance, to manufacturing and entertainment. American Program Bureau speakers inspire and motivate. In fact, no one has more experience matching the right speaker to the right event. 
again. Whether it's Mikhail Gorbachev, Desmond Tutu, John Stewart, or Richard Branson, the American Program Bureau offers speakers on every topic. And how do I know so much about the American Program Bureau? Because I'm an APB speaker myself. To contact the American Program Bureau to book a speaker for your next event, go to apbspeakers.com. That's apbspeakers.com or phone 800-225-4575. An astonishing number of the world's most admired guitar builders live and work in Santa Cruz. The Santa Cruz County Art of Guitar Exhibit and Festival runs February 1st through March 15th at the R. Blitzer Gallery in Santa Cruz. Now everyone can view the intimate details of these beautiful guitars and enjoy diverse performances too. Visit the website at santacruzluthiers.org. That's santacruzluthiers, L-U-T-H-I-E-R-S dot O-R-G. Brought to you in part by KSCO. Given what's going on in the world, it's more important than ever to save money. Hello, I'm Scott Bedell from Bedell Nelson Harbor Insurance, your allied agent in Santa Cruz. Bedell Nelson can save you money by packaging your home and auto coverage with Allied. We can even help you save on your vacation rental with Foremost Insurance Group. Give us a call at 426-3700 and ask for a free, no-obligation quote. We are Bedell Nelson Harbor Insurance, and we can save you money because Allied and Nationwide are on your side. 426-3700. Hi, I'm Pamela Fugit-Hedrick, the host of Money Moves. Cash flows and money moves, but do you find money moving out of your wallet faster than it comes in? Do you wish you had a personal money manager? Do your best Dirty Harry imitation. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, Bunk? Go ahead. Make my day. Pretend that your finger is your gun. Quick draw. Aim. Point and straight ahead. Notice that one finger is pointing out, but you have at least three pointing back at you. You're the best person to manage your own money. To get the tools you need for the job, listen to Money Moves Thursday night from 7 to 8 p.m. As your host, I promise that each week, Money Moves will leave you with some tips and tools to help you manage your own money. Thursday nights, 7 p.m. for Money Moves. Remember, that's Thursday nights, 7 p.m. for Money Moves. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Chuck Blahouse. And he was making the point that even if we do make a special uh, one-time transfer over to Social Security to get rid of the huge deficit we have, we're still on the hook for the debt uh, one way or another. And I didn't mean to cut you off, but we had to go to hard break. Um, is that right? I mean, we're, we're going to wind up paying it off uh, through either payroll taxes or income taxes. That, that's right, and I, and I think the, the way to think of it is that there's only one way to get it behind us, and that's basically to restrain our com- consumption, reduce our spending, and increase our contributions by so much in the near term that basically we sort of pay off that shortfall and get it behind us. But the, the problem I had with this Munell proposal is basically – created the image of getting it behind us by putting the assets in the Social Security Trust Fund, but without actually requiring us now to restrain our consumption or increase our contributions to actually get it behind us. It just would create a new form of debt for us to pay off. So basically, we'd be subsidizing the system with income taxes going forward. Uh, We actually would not have uh, uh, gotten younger generations out from underneath the problem at all. Uh So... If I'm reading between the lines here, there, there's no easy way out. The, the, um, the solution is we're going to have to cut benefits. 
and we're going to have to raise payroll taxes. Yeah, there's there's just a fundamental imbalance uh, between what the system is currently promising and what it uh, is projected to collect. And unfortunately, um, that imbalance consists entirely of an excess of benefits over tax contributions for people who have already entered the system. And what that means is that if you don't make changes that affect people who are in the system now. That means that the entire burden of financing the shortfall falls on the new entrants to the system. And, and our current calculation is that young people entering the workforce now will lose over 4% of their lifetime wages net to Social Security. That, that means even if they get every benefit they were promised, uh, they would still lose uh, 4% of their lifetime wages to this program. So not only do we have to change the benefit and tax structures in some way to deal with this, uh, if we don't want to bequeath younger generations with a system that makes them significantly poorer, uh, we need to get on it quickly and, and to do things that affect people who are older and in the pipeline now. I don't know how you're going to get someone who's worried about getting reelected to say, the only way we can fix this is raise your payroll taxes and cut your benefits, and that means you folks that are depending on those benefits today. Well, and that's exactly why I am skeptical that we're going to get this shortfall resolved. Uh, I think it's, it's more likely that we would have to abandon uh, the self-financing principle uh, and, and have a system that is financed largely from I mean, I don't favor this, but this is where I think we're going. Um, because the shortfall has grown so large and the choices have become so unpalatable, I think this, the stall technique that has been used to put off reforms, instead of, instead of causing reforms to happen in the way that one group might like more than another, it's basically going to make it impossible to enact them at all. And I think, uh, and, and I'm a minority view in this, but, but I think I'm correct, uh, I think the chances are growing slimmer and slimmer that we're going to be able to resolve the Social Security shortfall without basically uh, doing away with its historical financing structure. Well, I'm mad at FDR. I wish he would have fought harder to make sure that we paid in advance. He had the right idea, and uh, he didn't have enough support for that idea, and unfortunately uh, we're paying for that error now. Now, on the positive side, we got a bipartisan budget approved, and we avoided another government shutdown, which, of course, hurts everybody. But let me ask you about that budget relative to Social Security, Medicare, and the uh, new Affordable Care Act. Did, did we in any way address these issues in your view? in the new budget, or did we punt again? We, we punted. Uh, the, the, yeah. the big issues are still all unresolved. I, I wrote a piece recently where I said that if, if you had a, a budget submission and a budget debate where you didn't concern yourself with, with politics and just concerned yourself with how do you repair the overall budget outlook, uh, you would focus all of your effort on controlling the growth of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and that's not to say that should be the only value that we have is dealing with our fiscal situation, but the extent to which we are not doing those things is basically the extent to which we're allowing other agendas to divert us from our fiscal repairs, and we're not doing those things. We haven't dealt in any serious way with any of those programs as part of the uh, recent budget deal or in any other context. Well, we cannot get, I don't know if people, uh, you know, hear this strongly enough, we cannot get out of overspending unless we do address these entitlement programs. There's just no way to cut everything else and expect it to make even a dent. 
That's true. In fact, uh, the CBO report, Congressional Budget Office report that came out earlier this year, was very they, very, they very much tried to dramatize this. And they put, they put a graph in there that showed that relative to the size of our economy, uh, these four programs are all growing much, much faster. So we have this fundamental sustainability problem where we have yeah. uh, these programs that are they're, they're growing faster than the underlying tax base can sustain. But the other parts of the budget the entire appropriated part of the budget, and uh, including defense and including all the other mandatory programs, that is shrinking relative to the size of our economy. So we continue to put the squeeze on other areas of the budget because of our political unwillingness to deal with the growth of the most sensitive programs. Well, I think you said it uh, perfectly there. It's our uh, it, it's our unwillingness to deal with it from a political standpoint, and that's a shame because we all lose when we don't uh, face up to the truth. That is our program for today. I, I wish we had more time because this is an important issue, and it only doesn't just affect people who are depending on Social Security, but also the young people who are who are who have hopes and aspirations and don't deserve to be taxed four and five and six percent to uh, to pay for debts that we're ringing up right now. But before we say goodbye to you, I I do want to take this opportunity to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Blahouse. Thank you for having me on. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Chuck Blahouse, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or our website. As you heard, Social Security and Medicare were programs designed to be paid for through payroll taxes, and we have been subsidizing their shortfalls through income taxes uh, for some time now, and, and now comes the Affordable Care Act, which will tack another $340 billion into the federal deficit in the first 10 years. Where is all this deficit spending going to end? If you have an answer, I'd like to hear from you. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com and click on the contact page where there's a box for you to type in your comment and send us your email. And remember, if it's pithy and smart, I might just read it on the air. And while you're at the website, be sure to check out our brand new bookstore. I've received lots of emails asking me what I'm reading and also from parents and teachers across the country asking what books I recommend. So uh, we started a small uh, handful of books uh, on the bookstore and uh, we're adding as we go, but uh, here's the wonderful news. When, when you click on any book on the site, it takes you right over to Amazon, and anything you order, whether, whether it's a book, a video camera, a DVD, a printer cartridge, everything and anything you order when you go through our bookstore site to the Amazon webpage allows the Costa Report to receive a donation from Amazon. So the next time you shop on Amazon, please don't go directly to Amazon. Go to RebeccaCosta.com and click on any book on our bookstore page to get to the Amazon site, because when you do it that way, you make a free donation, which keeps interviews like the one you heard today on the air. The Costa Report is one of the last independent news broadcasts in this country, and we intend to remain that way. So do your part and go through our website the next time you shop Amazon. And one last thing before we close this first hour, if you missed the interview with Blahouse today, all of it or any part of it or any of our other guests for that matter, remember you can download previous episodes for the Costa Report anytime, anywhere from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. Well, 
You are not going to want to miss my guest next week. I'm going to be sitting down with civil rights activist Jesse Jackson to talk about divisiveness in America and what spiritual leaders like Jackson can and must be doing to put unemployed Americans back to work. I don't want you to miss a, a, a nice sit-down. I know I know a lot of you have been sending me emails saying, we already know what Jesse Jackson's going to say. Well, let me tell you, I had a chance to talk to Jesse Jackson a couple of days ago, and I'm going to tell you right up front, no, you don't. I think that you're going to be surprised at what Jesse Jackson has to say about putting America on the right course toward, unemploy- toward <laughs> unemployment employment and, and prosperity. So don't miss the always outspoken Jesse Jackson next week right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now I hope you'll stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. I'm broadcasting to you today from the beautiful, and I do mean beautiful, city of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, we had a blizzard come in the other day, and, and it looks like a, it, it, well, it looks like Disneyland today. Uh, beautiful, beautiful warm weather and, and beautiful snow all over the ground. We'll, we'll be right back in just a few moments with the second hour of the Costa Report. We create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data, and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone. This data comes from everywhere, and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data, and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile, and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's Big Data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM Big Data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. Shirtcrafter, your one-stop print shop, has been locally owned and operated in Santa Cruz for a decade, providing custom design services to help you build your brand. Shirtcrafter provides top-of-the-line custom screen printing, digital printing, embroidery, stickers, banners, business cards, and so much more. They carry top-quality brands of gear from T-shirts and polos to sweatshirts and ball caps. Whether you're outfitting your softball team or team building for your business, Shirtcrafter has it all. So build your brand with Shirtcrafter, located at 111 Ingalls Street in Santa Cruz, or go to www.shirtcrafter.com. Or you could give them a call at 831-423-0537. That's Shirtcrafter, 831-423-0537. Surfing Northern California for over 65 years. This is KSCO Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 